Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. So Podgo is the easiest way for you to, to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space. So you always know how much you're going to get, right? So apply today, you become a member and you can start reading ads, you know, as soon as you get accepted and you get paid, you get paid a flat rate within 24 hours. So make sure to check out podgo.co, that's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And uh, be sure to add our podcast in the how did you hear about Podgo section of the application. the language of the universe but i don't understand it hello everybody welcome back to the math and physics podcast i'm your host parker and i'm ray and we welcome you back to episode number 40 where today we're going to be talking about the big math i.e. calculus. So today we're basically just going to be kind of getting into, you know, calculus in general, why it's so important, how it helps us. But also a quick note before we start, in the last episode, I mentioned that that was episode 40. It wasn't. It was actually episode number 39. Some of you might have caught that. So this is actually episode number 40. So 10 more for the big 5-0. Any, any news we want to get out before we start the the big man. 2,500 followers on Spotify. Oh, true, true. That's awesome. Uh, one more thing. If you are listening on Spotify or Apple Music or anything else, we are now on iHeartRadio. Oh, nice. And Amazon. Amazon has a podcast? Like Amazon Podcast or something? Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? I think we, all, I think we always were on there, right? Probably. Anyways, uh, where yep. we are recording yep. uh, on Zoom. So you can see our faces if you want to go and do that. Other than that, uh, we can just get started and talk about calculus. So we do understand mm -hmm. that some people that exactly. listen to our podcast have not done calculus yet. There are a lot of high school students out there that do listen to the math and physics podcast. And so the first thing we are going to talk about is mm -hmm. what is calculus? Because before I took high school calculus, I had no idea what calculus was. If someone would have said, oh, limits and derivatives, I'd be like, I, mm -hmm. I don't know, man. <laughs> I've just been adding numbers and drawing graphs my whole life. So Yeah, because also in grade 11, if I'm not mistaken, we don't do like any traces of calc, right? No. Like no limits, no. nothing, right? Exactly. Yeah. So grade 11 kind of doesn't really prepare you for grade 12 calc nope. at all. I think it's a kind of a whole new, uh, whole new regime itself. But I think it's kind of interesting the way they, they do it. Like, did you guys have like advanced functions yeah and then transitioned into calculus like something like that mm -hmm. yeah you had something like that too right yeah that's right we just did uh advanced functions drawing graphs doing uh, sine and cosine inverse functions and then after that you go straight into calculus which is just limits derivatives critical points drawing graphs mm -hmm. and i think that's it after that we do a little bit of vectors and that's about it. Oh, yeah. You guys did vectors too? Even though our course was called Calculus and Vectors, we did like one week, if not two of vectors. Like that's it. We did not. Really? I think I had two units. No, really? I think I had I had two whole units. Yeah, we did. Um, that's wow. I didn't know that. That's pretty crazy. We did like one unit on just vectors and dot products mm -hmm. and cross products. Yeah, we didn't even do cross product. No, no, we did. No, we did cross product. Well, we just did it in two weeks. 
like no joke it was crazy i mean it's just like okay well i don't know the last unit was like planes and intersections of mm -hmm. planes and lines and things like that oh that that really gears you up for linear algebra yeah it does yeah very much that's why like first semester of linear algebra in university was very very easy or first half yeah. of the first semester because it's only one semester oh yeah true first half of course that's right yeah 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 also to be honest like drawing graphs in calculus is very underrated in my opinion like i think it is so useful mm -hmm. to draw graphs and i mean obviously we're gonna come to you know why it's so important and stuff like that absolutely i actually hated it in grade 12 just because i'm like what is the point of drawing so many graphs like we're trying to do math here you know i just didn't really understand it until i really came to university math if you can't visualize it like it's really hard to you know do the problem like sometimes visualizing it just really helps and that can obviously be done with graphs, right? So mm -hmm. I think very important. Yeah, and I remember my math teacher, mm -hmm. while I was taking advanced functions, he was like, yeah, don't worry about where the local mins and maxes are. Like all you have to draw is like the general shape. And he's like, yeah, next semester, you'll be able to draw it like precisely. I'm like, wait, how? <laughs> like, <laughs> how do you find the local max? <laughs> Makes no sense. <laughs> you, all you know is like where it crosses the whatever it's called <laughs> the well, x-axis yeah well no there's right, another yeah. name isn't it the abscesses or absi i don't know whatever oh like asymptote no like in french it's abscess it's where it crosses the. it's like there's like a name for a point that crosses the x-axis oh okay i mean it's just called roots in english i think it's just called just roots sure <laughs> sure you know like roots of the graph yeah, yeah. so first of all what is exactly calculus? If I had to say it, give a description for calculus in just a few words, it would be rate of change. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> for sure, for sure. I mean, there are more things that you learn after you learn about like limits and derivatives, but everything in calculus is pretty much a limit. Yeah, I think like what like what have we done that is not a limit? If you think about it, it can all be represented in terms of limits. Yeah. Yeah. And I think rate of change is like the perfect phrase to describe calculus. If you're just saying it like just describe it in one phrase, because at the end of the day, like all of calculus just depends on how one variable is changing with respect to another. That's mm -hmm. that's basically the entire idea of calculus. Basically, right? like when it comes to derivatives, it's. Uh, one variable divided by another when it comes to integrals it's multiplied and stuff like that so it's all about just how they're changing and that's the whole deal that's the whole deal right so at the end of the day i think the root the foundation is pretty basic even though it can definitely get very complicated yeah that's right and the first thing that any calculus course starts off with is limits mm -hmm. and yeah to be honest i didn't understand the importance of limits until I got to university. True. Very true. I did a I did an entire unit on limits in high school. And then we went on to derivatives. And I'm like, okay, well, there's like the product rule, the sum rule mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Why do I need limits anymore? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I just kind of threw them aside and then went on to doing other things in calculus and didn't really think about why limits are so important until we got to university, which you kind of dive a little bit deeper into what limits actually are mm -hmm. instead of just thinking very like hand wavy around the topic like in in high school when they describe what a limit is they're like well when you get very close to a value 
what happens to your function when it's very close. That, that's basically all they tell you, right? But they don't actually tell you that's like basically, formally that's the whole idea. what a limit that's the whole is idea. and how to write down. Like, like it's not just kind of this definition mm-hmm. where they, they, they say it to you, but it, there's a lot of holes that, uh, mm-hmm. that you can... Also, yeah, I kind of believe that we have, I mean, I think a better understanding of limits definitely because of the fact that we did a proof-related math course, though. General university math, like, for example, the U of T version of that is like uh, 135, right? And 235, like, those are the course codes. Mm-hmm. But, like, general university math for, like, non-science specialists, I guess, I'm not sure they even touch up on, you know, this formal definition of the limit. And that's why I think, you know, a lot of people, even in university, are like, I don't really see the points of limits when, you know, as Parker said, all these derivative rules are right here. Like derivative rules, like these tricks that we use to kind of solve these derivatives, it's kind of bad in some way, in the sense that we don't really understand what's going on. You know, we're just using these rules without really understanding why they work. Exactly. You know, and I think that's, an, that's a really important part of it. And Ray and I were thrown in unknowingly to, to this proof class. Oh. To be honest. My. That was crazy. I was expecting a regular, like, computational <laughs> calculus class. Very much so. Very much so. I was not expecting that. As soon as we got thrown into doing logic and proofs and proving limits and all Mm -hmm. that i was like man what is going Mm -hmm. on (laughs) because i remember in high school too for any like especially a mathematical proof is or or in physics for example like if there was any kind of proof relating any you know any equation we were always told that you don't really need to worry about the proof you mainly need to just worry about the result of the proof you know like or the theorem behind the proof Yeah, exactly and we're just like okay let's just let's just take it but yeah. the thing is, you never really understand it. You never really understand why that theorem works unless and until you prove it. Yeah. And I think that's why this proof and also like why we're going to be talking a little more about how you can like the limit proofs and stuff. I think that really helps into understanding why these limits are so important. And at the end yeah. of the day, I'm happy we did do a proof oh, related for class sure. For sure. because yeah. you really do get to see the machinery behind what you're actually doing and you know why the product rule is a thing and why the quotient rule is a thing so mm-hmm. let's talk about why do we need calculus calculus is is a big one because it really provides yeah. results for things that you just can't do without analyzing limits and without looking at very small quantities True. and very large quantities and i'm talking about you know as you're looking at the result of a a function or a change in the function as your value gets very, very small and then, you know, in, infinitesimally small or or infinitely large. So, for example, when you're... How about this? How about this? You drop a ball from, you know, one meter, let's say, and you can ask yourself, okay, what is the average velocity of that ball? Well, you know, you can just calculate the time it takes for the ball to hit the ground, divide one meter by that time, and you'll get the average velocity. But you know that when you let go of that ball, it's not moving, right? You need some interval of time to pass before it starts gradually accelerating. And by the time it hits the ground, it's going very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the question that calculus kind of asks in an indirect way. It's, okay, well, what about halfway through the descent? 
how fast is it moving exactly at that point halfway through? And you can ask yourself, well, you can calculate the average velocity of it moving half a meter and then the average velocity of the second part of that descent. And then if you just keep cutting that, that distance down to get closer and closer to just a single point, and then you might ask, well, you can't really calculate the average velocity over a single point because then you're dividing by zero. And so that's when, that's when limits come into play, where you ask, well, I can take the limit as that distance goes to zero, but I still get a result, right? It, it's kind of weird when you, you know, you've never done calculus before, but that is, you know, that is something that happens. Mm -hmm. You take the limit as the distance goes to zero and you still get a finite velocity. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're dividing by zero, but you're not because the, the time it takes also decreases. Exactly. And so then you're just doing like a very, you're doing like a rise over run with very small values, but that ratio is what you're looking for, right? Mm -hmm. But again, that that is kind of a description also of how like we can describe derivatives, right, with the use of limits. So what what you just described there was more of a derivative, right? Yeah. Like like I mean, the idea of a limit obviously considerably helps the idea of the derivative because it you know the formal definition quote unquote of the derivative is you know is a limit definition at the end of the day, right? But basically, like as as Parker was saying, even though the values, as he said, is divided by zero because the average, you're only taking it over one number. So how can you do that? Again, the limit is simply giving you an, an idea of what the value is approaching. And I think that is a very important concept that was kind of driven hard in the first, in first year of math, where the limit as something is approaching something is not simply as x equals this value or as, you know, what is happening. The idea of a limit is simply what is happening around that value. And as you're moving closer and closer to that value, what is your function doing? And I think that's, I mean, that's the whole idea of a limit. And when, when it comes to derivatives, it's simply about taking that rate of change, right? And when that rate of change you know, equals it's a divided by zero, then what do you do? That's exactly where limit comes into play, right? So limits have a lot of roles in, you know, in calculus. And it's kind of also where a lot of it was defined from. Like to describe a limit formally, there's something called an epsilon delta proof, which we are absolutely not going to describe right now. But I mean, we we can give a general idea, though. I think we can give a general idea. Yeah, we, we we can give we can give a general idea, but there's no way that we're going to convey the full picture of what of what's actually going I mean, down. Okay, so the the very very general idea of an epsilon delta proof, I mean, is basically like let's say you have a function like y equals x squared, right, or or any mm -hmm. kind of function like that. I mean, just not getting into the math, just just the theory, just the idea behind an epsilon delta is basically, let's say you want to find your value of your function, let's say at x equals 5, right? Now, obviously, you already know what it is. It's 25 because it's x squared. But let's say you don't mm -hmm. know the value. So the, the entire point of the epsilon delta is if, let's say, you have x equals 5, the idea of, once again, this limit, this limit definition is as you get closer and closer to x equals 5, your function gets closer and closer to y equals 25. And that's 
and that's basically the epsilon delta. So let's say like you take one interval away. So your x equals six and x equals four, right? Then what is your function equal? Your function would be 16 and 36. And as you get closer and closer to x equals five, the idea is simply your function value is getting closer and closer to 25. Mm -hmm. So what that proves, what the epsilon delta can help you prove is, let's say you're trying to prove why the limit as x approaches 5 of x squared equals 25. Let's say you're trying to prove that. Now, if you're trying to prove that, that is where you would use this epsilon delta, that I can find some value close enough to x such that all values of your y are very close to 25. Mm -hmm. And basically, another idea that ties into that is that calculus is all about mm -hmm. zooming in, right? The... The, yeah. the idea of zooming yeah. in infinitely kind of also ties into continuity. But what I was trying to say is that you have a point and usually when you're taking uh, or you're trying to prove a limit, it's going to be some kind of function mm -hmm. that has a discontinuity at a point. And usually when you would draw that on a yeah. graph, Those you would draw ones. like a hole, right? But what you need to understand is that mm -hmm. that hole is just one point, which means that you can zoom in as close as you want to that hole, and there will always be values to the right and to the left. And so to prove the limit exists, what am I trying to say here? The, the function converges to that one point. What you're actually trying to do is you, you're, you're basically zooming in very close and you're saying, well, the closer and closer you zoom in, the closer and closer the values actually reach that point. But mm -hmm. you have to be careful because when you're, when you're, you're taking a limit, it doesn't like the function doesn't actually have to be defined at that point. It just has it's to true. be defined very, very infinitely close, close to, to that exactly. point. Exactly, and that's kind of the most fundamental idea in calculus, mm -hmm. I believe. Another uh, important thing in why do we need calculus? Like, you know, where does it come? In, you know, in in real life. Because, I mean, I think at the end of the day, a lot of people in high school, especially that are dealing with calculus, are like, when am I ever going to use this in real life? Like, this is so pointless, right? Like, you're like, this is just a bunch of math. Like, mm -hmm. this is so, like, you know, ridiculous. But I think, I mean, I think we were watching a video that was kind of like a prerequisite for one of our lectures in uh, in math. And I think this this example, I don't know why, it just really drove the point home when this let me just give you the example, right? Let's say you're running a business and you have a bunch of variables, right? You have the amount, let's say, that you are profiting, let's say your revenue in this case, the amount you have to pay your workers, the amount you have to pay, let's say, I don't know, that your partners, you know, you, you have a bunch of variables with different values. And your net profit, the net profit on your business will equal some function of those variables, right? Like, let's say it's simply, you know, simplest example. You have revenue and you have cost, right? Let's say you have a revenue and you have a cost. That's it. You have two variables. Your goal is to find your profit. Well, it'll simply be revenue minus cost, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty standard. So that is your profit function. Now, the goal in calculus and where it really becomes important is let's say... Now, obviously, as a business owner, you want to maximize your profit. You want to get the best possible results. Obviously, you want to maximize your revenue and minimize your cost. That's your end goal, right? So you have some function 
of these variables of in this case just revenue and cost but obviously in a real business it's going to be a lot more variables than that so you have some function of these many 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 variables and you want to calculate the what we call in math quote unquote global maximum of this function so once again this is where calculus comes into play, right? Like finding these derivatives, finding these limits at certain values. So certain values of the, of the function will have certain characteristics. Now, I don't think we want to go too deep into the math behind it, but just like generally speaking, certain points on the function, like certain XY points will have certain derivatives. And when you check them together, okay, this is not really explaining very well without the math. It's a little hard to do it without the math itself. <laughs> but basically, the idea is you can find this global maximum of your function of these many, many, many variables with calculus. And that's what calculus can do. So it can maximize your, you know, your profit in a business. And I think like that, that example just really made sense to me. Like how, because I mean, it's very realistic, you know, for, for a profit function to be multiple multiple variables and obviously just spits out one number so if you're trying to find the maximum of that number that it spits out what do you do you have to use calculus and i think that's also a really big part which uh calculus plays in in real world mm -hmm. right and i wanted to mention i think it would have been pretty useful to mention before you talked about all this but derivatives just tell you yeah probably the rate of change at a point. So if we're just talking about one-dimensional mm -hmm. uh, calculus here, you pick a point on your graph, you take the derivative of the function, and you plug in that point that you want, and it'll spit out the rate of change. So if you have a really high rate of change, if you move a little bit to the right, you're going to be increasing your function by a lot. If your derivative is zero at that point, that means if you move a tiny bit to the right or a tiny bit to the left, then your function is not going to change. Well, it is going to change, but it's like very locally, it, the, the value is going to stay pretty much the same. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we call those critical points. Those are like the points, if you know y equals x squared, right? There's, there's a point where there's the, the summit, right? The bottom. At that point, at the bottom, that's where your rate of change is zero because it's if, if you draw kind of the tangent line to it, it's going to have a slope of zero. And we call those critical points because those are the minimums or the local minimums, the local maximums, um, and also possibly global. But you, there are there are tests that you have to do for to to find those. Exactly. But those really tell you. They tell you the, the right information that you want to know. Because if you have like just a one-dimensional profit function, right? So your, your profit is solely based on uh, one variable, let's say. And so you want to see where is your profit going to be the maximum when, you know, at, at what number your variable, at what number you evaluate your variable at. Does that make sense? Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the maximum possible value of all of your variables. Yeah. So what you're going to want to look for is obviously the global mm -hmm. maximum. And that global maximum is going to uh, be at a point. And let's say, you know, the, uh, you're, you're not looking at boundary conditions because this is this will just complicate the whole thing. Right? Oh, you're getting it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to complicate the whole, the whole um, <laughs> explanation here. But your global maximum is going to occur if it occurs at all. It's going to, it's going to happen at a point where even if you move to the right or the left, 
you're not going to go any higher. You're, you're already at that point. So your derivative is going to be zero. Exactly. So that's how you solve for those, uh, you know, important points. You, you find yeah. points where the derivative is zero, and then you check. Is it, exactly. is it a high point? Is it a low point? Is it a local min, local max? And those important points are what I was basically trying to talk about in, in, the, yeah. in the global max of that profit function example. Right? Like once you find those critical points, those critical values, you can you know, just plug them in and find out which one's the highest, and boom, that's your global maximum. Those critical points translate directly into like multivariable calculus. Of course, some examples mm -hmm. of visualizing these critical points can be very difficult if you're talking about a 27-dimensional input space and all that stuff. Oh, my. So it's not always easy to imagine, yeah. but the easiest one would be like if you have a surface, right? So you have two variables, your input lies somewhere on a surface and your output is is just a scalar valued function so every input has has a just a single value as your output yeah basically think of like kind of like a 3d graph where like your xy plane is just flat and this z axis now is just pointing straight up so any value on this flat you know plane will just point to a certain z value yeah and so you can check points that have we call it gradient. <laughs> this is okay, gonna be, this sure. is gonna get complicated get too it. too quickly, but yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Okay, a little bit. let's not let's not talk about gradient right now. Anyways, let's not talk a little bit about gradients. Yeah, that I think I think that's a that's another discussion yeah, for another right. day. But because remember, this one is the high school, right? The high school version, the high school demographic calculus. <laughs> yeah, actually, let's not talk about multivariable calculus anymore. Yeah, um, let's 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 not let's not. So just con continuing with derivatives, I think uh, a, a, a really important uh, idea with, uh, with derivatives is higher order derivatives. And I believe this is, this is taught yeah. in high school, yeah. right? Yes, for sure, for sure, yeah. So higher order derivatives, and I, th I think the best example for this is, the, think of the exact same thing that Parker was saying with the ball that you drop from one meter high. Right Now, if you want to find the average velocity, as he said, you simply take your distance and you divide it by your time. But now, remember, when you drop your ball, right, zero speed, somehow it has X amount of speed when it hits the ground. So it obviously accelerated. So now, if you want to calculate the acceleration of this ball, then what do you do? So the acceleration is basically a rate of change of the rate of change. So remember the golden word, right? The golden word right. of calculus is rate of change. So if you take exactly. a derivative, you find the rate of change at a point. If you take mm -hmm. a second derivative, you're finding exactly. the rate of change of the rate of change, which, you know, if, you're, if your speed is increasing, then you're accelerating. If your speed is decreasing, then you're decelerating. But if you're, if you're going mm -hmm. backwards, and then you're going backwards faster and faster, then, exactly. Then you're technically decelerating because you're going more and more negative. And but... more backwards. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's where the second derivative, the third, like all these higher order derivatives come into play, right? Where higher order, like, for example, as I was, as we were just saying, like acceleration, kind of the rate of change of the rate of change, right? Where velocity itself is meters per second. Acceleration is meters per square second. So what you're basically doing is you're simply taking the rate of change. Meters per second squared. Second squared. So square seconds. That's what it. Square seconds. Okay, you know, like sure. you know, how you say square centimeters. It's the same thing. Square seconds. You know, kind of thing. Okay. okay. Anyways. Yeah. So um, hi even higher order derivatives, like the 
wait, is it? I think it's the fourth, fifth, and sixth derivatives of position with respect to time. It's known as snap, crackle, and pop. You guys might have heard of that. I don't know. I just really wanted to mention that. Have you never, heard, never of snap, heard of snap, crackle, pop? No. Okay, so if, if, any, if anyone's a, a Rick and Morty fan out there, definitely send us an email because I would love to meet some Rick and Morty fans. Uh, but yeah, so snap, crackle, pop is just like, I mean, it, they say it sometimes. And it's basically the fourth, I believe it's the fourth, fifth, and sixth derivatives of position with respect to time. So it's basically like if you differentiate acceleration, you get something called jerk. So like how, how fast your acceleration is changing it's called jerk, right? And it kind of makes sense because it's kind of like, like let's say you're, you know, jerking in a vehicle, right? You're basically like, you know, jerking back and forth. So you're... <laughs> that did not come out right, man. <laughs> I mean, okay, that sounded so wrong. That's not what I meant, and you know it. I meant like back and forth, man. Like you understand that. Obviously, sure. for the for the non-viewer participants, you might have not seen that thing that I was doing, so it might have not made sense. <laughs> you said we're jerking in a car back and forth, man. <laughs> okay i apologize for those choice of words but i think people understand what i'm trying to say like as like the the change in acceleration over time is the jerk i mean that's just what it's called and then when you differentiate the jerk you get snap crackle pop wait right because acceleration is two three yeah then you get snap crackle pop i believe so i mean not that it's anything important it's just it's just a famous but do you know what those things are I mean, as I said, it's just the fourth, fifth, and sixth derivatives with respect. Yeah, but what do they to represent? That's that's all. They, I mean, they're just cool words. I believe. Okay. I don't think they represent okay. anything. I mean, okay, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. It's just that I I heard of this because of Rick and Morty, and I searched it up, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. So yeah, I, just I mean, I obviously, it. obviously, it's gonna be the rate of change of the rate of change of the rate of change. But like, what does that mean physically if you're talking about velocity and? Yeah, again, I think it's a little hard to explain that way because I think like up to jerk is really where all you can really kind of visually explain and understand. But I think Mm -hmm. beyond that, like what like rate of jerk of my that's this sounds so wrong, bro. (laughs) So weird. But like you know what I mean? Like the rate of jerk with respect to time. Like what like what even is that? Like okay, (laughs) let's just move on. Let's just move on. Let's just move on. So those were higher order derivatives. Quite important. So after. After derivatives comes the big one. You see something called an antiderivative, and uh, turns out that you know taking derivatives is very very easy Mm -hmm. compared to taking reverse derivatives, antiderivatives. So the antiderivatives, also called integrals, I think integrals is a very daunting name to be honest. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, because derivatives itself were like okay, that that sounds pretty cool, to, especially to like a non-mathematician. You know, like derivative is like oh, this guy's doing calculus, he's cool <laughs> and everything, you know. But like when you hear integral, I don't know, it just it just sounds like you know, because integral like in English, I guess just means it's an important thing. Yeah, like it's an integral part. So like integral, it's very it's very important to calculus. Yeah, and it has a cool sign. Yeah, it has a very cool sign. But also interesting fact, and I believe we said this: Newton, Isaac Newton, who invented partially invented calculus, started with integration, which is so weird because nowadays we call the integral the antiderivative. So it's kind of based on the derivative. But the way Newton mm-hmm. invented this thing, he invented it starting with integrals and i think that's i think we mentioned it but i think that that's just 
something to re-mention for sure. That's definitely really commendable. And the reason why you learn derivatives before integrals is because mm-hmm. there's a very nice way to relate the two. And it's, you yeah. know, if you have a function that describes the area under a certain curve, taking mm-hmm. the derivative of that will give you the actual function itself. Exactly. And so there's kind of a flow, right? And, you know, dif- differentiation is going forward and integrating is going backwards, right? You have mm-hmm. a certain curve. You want to find the area under that curve or the technically the weighted area because in this case the area can be negative. And yeah, that's you, true. You, you want to take the area under that curve. You would go backwards, integrate that function, and then plug in your bounds, but we're not being very I mean, okay, okay. we're not explaining this very well <laughs> i mean okay we're not really we're not trying to explain i mean like technical integration but again the, the main idea is simply while differentiation or the derivative is the the rate of change of a variable with respect to another integration is the same in a little different way so let me explain this and i think this uh kind of explains it this might explain it well if i do a good job doing this so if we think of velocity right Velocity is the derivative of displacement with respect to time, right? Like, or like the rate of change of, of displacement or your distance with respect to time, right? As we said, it's just distance over time. Now, acceleration, as I said, is simply your, your change in velocity over change in time. Now, here where it becomes interesting, we commonly know the acceleration, right, as the velocity, okay, Let's not do acceleration. Let's do, we commonly know velocity equals distance multiplied by time, right? Like we know that. We equal speed equals distance times time, right? So now this is where it becomes really cool. If you have, wait, am I thinking about this right? One sec, one sec. I think I'm thinking about this a little wrong. One sec. (laughs) Little brain glitch here. If you have a, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm not thinking about this wrong. If you have a curve, that represents velocity versus time, and you integrate that curve, you will get your displacement, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, uh, sorry, I just had a, I just had a quick brain glitch. I was, I was, I was thinking about the other way and I'm like, wait, no, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, okay, the velocity times time. So when you have two variables multiplied together, like distance times time, when you're integrating the velocity function, for example, you are getting the distance, you're getting the multiplication. However, when you're differentiating the velocity curve, what do you get? You get acceleration, right? So like with the velocity curve, if you take the derivative, you get acceleration. If you get the, in, if you take the integral, you're getting the distance or the displacement in this case, right? So the entire idea is how these variables are related because acceleration is velocity over time. When you differentiate that, you get acceleration. But Velocity equals acceleration okay. times time. So when you integrate acceleration, I think you repeated yourself you like thirty times here. So yeah, I okay. I don't. I mean, I think that made sense. Okay, it made sense in my head. I don't sure. know if it really so, made sense. But I, I was basically mainly just trying to explain because because these three variables have a very strong relationship that can be explained using calculus, which is distance, velocity, and acceleration. And those are, I think, the most common variables. 
or freight, like, you know, terms used to explain a lot of terms in calculus. So I was just trying to kind of give a relationship between how they're all related with derivative and integral. I don't know if I did a very good job, but that was my goal sure. to kind of get you that understanding. That's where integrals come When from. we say area under the curve, yeah, right, one can kind of imagine how we would do that, right? So let's say we have like a simple curve that, you know, hits the x-axis, goes above the x-axis and then hits the x-axis again, right? And then we want to say, we want to calculate the area that the x-axis and that curve forms, right? Forms yeah. some weird shape and we want to calculate that area. So the simplest way to approximate that area would just be to draw the biggest rectangle that you can mm -hmm. inside that that shape well technically outside and, right because it should it should incorporate all of it well no I, i'm talking about the inside now so okay you, okay this has to do with um the infimum right we're gonna okay like that. the lower and yeah, the upper so, okay okay you're talking about that okay so you can get a lower bound for your area so by drawing a single rectangle inside that shape you're saying, okay, the area is definitely bigger than this rectangle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you can also get an upper bound very easily. If you draw a rectangle... Exactly, by drawing outside. Around the entire shape yeah. and you know, intersecting the x-axis, mm -hmm. you, you know that your entire shape can fit inside that rectangle and there's a little bit extra. So you can say, well, my area is definitely within this box mm -hmm. which has mm -hmm. an easily easily calculable calculatable uh area i think the easiest i think the easiest example though is just like just just to think of like a regular like a function that's kind of a square or a rectangle in this case and that, that and that way you can kind of explain that in this case the integral would be very easy to calculate since it's simply like i'm just saying that's how you would do it you would take the area under that curve so explaining area under just mm -hmm. a rectangle and then moving it on to how you can use this rectangle to then approximate curves. So that's what I think great. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so this brings in ideas that we talked about earlier, which about limits, right? And so now mm -hmm. let's take a step by step here. If you now give yourself two rectangles, you can draw, you're allowed to draw two rectangles inside your shape. You know, let's just say they have equal and width. Outside. And you can, mm -hmm. that way you can get a more accurate representation of what the area is. And now let's say you have three, four, five, and you just increase the amount of rectangles that you're allowed to draw inside, inside your shape. And then, you know, the, the error, right, the leftover area is going to get smaller and smaller. And then you do the same thing, but from the outside, right, the, the rectangle that engulfs your entire shape you can limit yourself to two rectangles and then you can adjust the heights, right? To make it more and more accurate. And 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 so, sorry, you already mentioned that the lower bound was called the infimum. We should also probably mention that the upper bound is called the supremum. Well, actually, that's not actually well, um, it, what the infimum is. Well, technically, it's, it's, the, it's the lowest upper bound, yes, but that's basically what it is, right? Yeah, so... Like, you're, you're calculating the infimum and the supremum, right? When you're doing that. Yeah, so the, the supremum is the lowest upper yeah. bound and the infimum is the highest, highest lower, lower bound. bound. Exactly. And so now if we take the limit as, and this is not uh, the formal definition, by not the way. Well. this is just to give you a mental picture. If we take the limit 
as the amount of rectangles that you're allowed to draw goes to infinity. So you have an infinite amount of rectangles that you can draw and your area gets very, very accurate, mm -hmm. right? Because each, I mean, just again, because if you visualize it, each rectangle will have a very, very, very small width. So yeah. for any very, very, very small change in the function, that rectangle will be able to fully engulf that change, right? Because mm -hmm. these widths are so tiny. Because as we're getting infinite rectangles, of course, like the width of each rectangle is nearly approximately zero, right? So it's it's getting very, yeah. very small changes in your function. Yeah. The same thing goes for the the rectangles that were above your your shape. Exactly. It gets it's it gets closer and closer to the actual area of uh, of the area under the curve. And so we say a function is integrable when you take this limit as the amount of rectangles that you're allowed to use goes to infinity and the the upper bound and the lower bound equal each other. So basically as you're approximating from mm -hmm. underneath and approximating from above, these two numbers converge to the same value and then you say, well, okay, this has to be exactly. the exact mm -hmm. value for the area mm -hmm. under the curve. And I think that's also where limits play a pretty important role. Like, because everyone thinks it's only used for derivatives or like, you know, limits are only used for like approximating these functions, but it can also be used for so many other things. Just like as something approaches something, what happens to something? Like it's, it's very, <laughs> very general because I know many people think, especially I mean, like, for example, me in high school, I used to only think of limits when it came to like, you know, f of x or something like that, like some kind of function, mathematical function. But in this case, like we're just taking rectangles, right? We're just taking yeah. rectangles and we're taking as the number of rectangles go to infinity. So it's, it's, it's not even that mathematical. It's very, very general. And I think that's also where, you know, we can see that limits play such an important role because as we take this limit as the number of rectangles go to infinity, as Parker just stated, we simply get both of these values converging to the same number, which is... Exactly. And what I just described was actually called Riemann integration, which is uh, the act Ooh. of taking these rectangles mm. and taking the amount as it goes to infinity, and then you get a certain value. And, you know, Riemann integration is very good to build up an intuition for what in integration actually is, but it is not the most effective mm -hmm. way to directly calculate areas under the curve. And, you know, the easiest way is to take an antiderivative, which easily enough, you know, it's not actually... In some cases, it's not very easy, but you just have to <laughs> pretend like you're given the derivative and you're trying to find from that derivative, you're trying to find the original function. What you'll see is that you, there's not just one function that you can exactly. find. There's actually a family of functions. And those families of functions are simply um, differentiated, no pun intended, by a constant, right? Because as you can probably imagine, if you have a constant function, so f of x is equal to 1 everywhere, what is the rate? The rate of change of your function is just 0 because everywhere you go, it's 1. Your function is not changing at all. And so if, you, if you're given a rate of change, let's say your rate of change is some function, you find by, in, by taking the antiderivative, you find the original function. But what tells you that your original function is not that function, but plus 1? That would have no effect on the rate of change of your function because actually this would kind of take some 
understanding of how you take derivatives. <laughs> yeah, that's I was just going to say, this kind of takes a little bit of an understanding of how differentiation relates to constants yeah. and stuff like that. So, I mean, basically constants don't affect the derivative so if it's like so if your function is for example x plus 5 or x plus 10 or x plus 5 million the derivative will be the exact same but your integral will be different yeah absolutely because again it's the it's the opposite of the derivative right because if it doesn't matter for the derivative it matters for the integral so it's kind of like that also a quick note when you were talking about riemann integration also like a common term that people use is Riemann sums. Basically, the integral sign is mainly used when you're taking the summation, you know, that big sigma that some of you might have seen. So like when you're taking the summation of the areas of all of these rectangles, and as the rectangles go to infinity, you get your integral. So like your Riemann sum, if I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the Riemann sum to infinity is the integral. So I think that's how a lot of people define it. So like Riemann integration is basically, I mean, it's the same idea, but it's just yeah. the the sum is kind of like the formal way to introduce what the integral actually is yeah. in a way. And you always need to make sure that your function is actually integrable. Always, yeah. One thing I'd like to say to all of our listeners out there is, you know, if you're in university in mathematics, you've probably dealt with this type of function before. Okay. But imagine a function that is equal to zero for every rational number, right? So every number that can be described as a, a fraction, it's zero. And then every number that you can't describe as a function, so every irrational number, it's equal to one. And now I want you to think about, is that integrable? Can you take the area under that function from any point to any point, right? So that's an interesting idea to also think about. And also, when you're taking the area under a curve, you are taking it from one point to another, right? They're bounds, technically, because you're bounding your area that you want to integrate, right? So they're called lower and upper bounds. Yeah, so if, this is mostly a question or a thought for people who have never done integration before because the answer is pretty obvious, to me at least. <laughs> Probably not to some people, but let's say you are integrating. You want to find the area under a curve from A to A from one point to the same exact point. Is there an actual value for that area? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Have a think about it. Yeah. So um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, okay, quick, quick summary. Talked about limits. Talked about uh, why limits are so important, why calculus is so important. Spoke a little bit about derivatives, higher order derivatives, you know, velocity, acceleration, all that good stuff. And finally ended it with some integration. I think we got some good progress. So for any um, any high school any high school student out there who's listening to the math and physics podcast, uh, know that integration is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, you don't do it in high school, right? Unless you're taking like an AP or an IB uh, course. Because um, I, I believe, yeah, 12 AP and all that stuff has it. Absolutely. So yeah, that's been episode number 40. One thing that I want to say before we end it, just a little sneak peek for everybody that's in high school. Whatever you learn in, in high school calculus, university, you're just basically going to be relearning everything you just learned <laughs> in, in your first year. <laughs> in your second year, you're, good, you're just going to be learning, relearning everything you learned in your first year, but just very true, very true. expanded to uh, various dimensions. To be honest, though, I think it's really nice that we relearn everything in the first year of university because yeah. it's definitely taught in a much, much, much more understanding way. 
So I definitely understandable. Yeah, definitely recommend university. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone's contemplating. <laughs> if you if you want to learn math, <laughs> go to university. It's recommended. Yeah, for sure. It's useful. Alrighty. If you're listening to this podcast right now on Spotify or Apple or iHeartRadio, oh. make sure to follow or anywhere else you might be listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe, follow, leave a comment. We will answer your comments, definitely. And uh, also send, send us, us an email. email. Yeah. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it is at math.physics.podcast. If you want to send us an email, just add at gmail.com at the end of our Instagram handle. If you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, mathphysicspod. Pod, yes. That's it. Our name is actually too long to be a Twitter handle. Yeah, I think it's kind of sad. Yeah. If you want to leave a like on the YouTube video, subscribe for the YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube, man. Yeah, for sure. I think our... Come watch us on YouTube. Our YouTube channel uh, needs some more recognition right now. So if you guys are on Spotify, uh, definitely, you know, go check out our YouTube because... We're starting to, you know, every episode, as already mentioned, is now going to be on Zoom. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that's really cool. And obviously, the only reason we're doing it on Zoom is so that, you know, people on YouTube can watch it because I guess we can't really post the mm-hmm. video anywhere else. So, you know, go ahead and watch it, like it, subscribe, and uh, comment. We're always, always replying to comments. So, yeah, this has been the 40th episode, 40. episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, make sure to tell a friend today that might enjoy our content. Tell a friend. Make sure to tell a friend. Tell them to come on over and listen to an interesting episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. Absolutely. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we'll see you soon. See ya. <laughs>